I have to begin by apologising to those of you who are hoping for a sermon on Judges 19, 1 to 50, as the order of worship says. Um, I got almost everything wrong this week, including that um, we're actually in the book of Joshua. Judges chapter 19 doesn't have 50 verses in it. Joshua chapter 19 has 51 verses in it, and we'll be reading all of them. Uh, I have actually preached on Judges 19 approaching a dozen times in various situations, which you might, if you know anything about that chapter, you might be thinking, goodness, what? Um, ask me in forum if you're really interested. But for now, we're looking at the book of Joshua, uh, beginning at chapter 19. Just a, a very brief word. I'm conscious that there are some folks here who haven't been with us for the whole of this series. The book of Joshua, as many of you will know, you probably all know, uh, is the historical account of the conquest of the land of Canaan by the Israelites under the leadership of Joshua. And so it has a lot to say to the church about the fulfillment of our commission, if you like, to conquer by the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, our inheritance, which according to Romans 4 is the whole world. So we have a lot to learn from this, even from Joshua chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. The second lot came out for Simeon and the tribe of the people of Simeon, according to their clans, and their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the people of Judah. And they had for their inheritance Beersheba, Sheba, Moladah, Hazashual, Bala, Ezem, Eltadad, Bethel, Horma, Ziklag, Beth, Markaboth, Hazar, Susan, Beth, Labaoth, and Sharuhem, 13 cities with their villages, Ain, Rimon, Ether, and Athan, four cities with their villages, together with all the villages round these cities as far as Balath, Beer, Ramah of the Negev. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Simeon according to their clans. The inheritance of the people of Simeon formed part of the territory of the people of Judah. Because the territory of the people of Judah was too large for them, the people of Simeon obtained an inheritance in the midst of their inheritance. The third lot came up for the people of Zebulun according to their clans, and the territory of their inheritance reached up as far as Sarid. Then their boundary goes up westwards and on to Mariel and touches Dabashieth and the brook that is east of Jokniam. From Sarid it goes in the other direction, eastward, towards the sunrise to the boundary of Chisloth-Tabor. From there it goes to Dabarath, then up to Japhia. From there it passes along to the east, to the sunrise, to Gath-Hefer, to Eth-Kazim, and going on to Rimen it bends towards Nia. Then on the north the boundary turns about to Hathanon, and it ends at the valley of Iftahel, and Katath, Nahalal, Shimron, Idalah, and Bethlehem, 12 cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the people of Zebulun, according to their clans, these cities with their villages. The fourth lot came out for Issachar, and the people of Issachar, according to their clans, their territory included Jezreel, Chesaloth, Chunam, Hapharaim, Shion, Anaharath, Rabith, Kishion, Ebez, Remeth, Engadim, Enhada, Beth Pazes. The boundary also touches Tabor, Shahuzamah, and Beth Shemesh, and its boundary ends at the Jordan. 16 cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the people of Issachar, according to their clans, the cities with their villages. The fifth lot came out for the tribe of the people of Asher, according to their clans. Their territory included Helkath, Hali, Betem, Aksaf, Alamalek, Ahmad, Mishal. On the west it touches Carmel and Shihor Nibnath. Then it turns eastwards. It goes to Beth Dagon and touches Zebulun and the valley of if Tahel northwards to Beth Emek and Nial. Then it continues in the north to Kabul, Ebron, Rehob, Haman, Kana, as far as Sidon the Great. Then the boundary turns to Ramah, reaching the fortified city of Tyre. 
Then the boundary turns to Hosa and it ends at the sea. Mahalab, Achzib, Umar, Afek and Rehob, 22 cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Asher according to their clans, these cities with their villages. The sixth lot came out for the people of Naphtali, for the people of Naphtali, according to their clans. And their boundary ran from Heleth, from the oak in Zananim, and Adami Nekeb and Jabneel as far as Lakum, and it ended at the Jordan. Then the boundary turns westwards to Asnoth Tabor and goes from there to Hukok, touching Zebulun at the south and Asher on the west, and Judah on the east at the Jordan. The fortified cities are Zidim, Zer, Hamath, Rakath, Chinnereth, Adamah, Ramah, Hazor, Kedesh, Edre, Enhazor, Yidron, Migdal El, Hurem, Beth Anath, and Beth Shemesh. Nineteen cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Naphtali according to their clans. The cities with their villages. The seventh lot came out for the tribe of the people of Dan according to their clans. And the territory of its inheritance included... Zorah, Eshtaol, Irshemesh, Shaldim, Ijalon, Ithla, Elon, Timnah, Ekron, Ektele, Gibethon, Balath, Jehud, Beneberak, Garthrimon, and Mijakon, and Rakon, with the territory over against Joppa. And the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them. And the people of Dan went up and fought against Leshem. And after capturing it with the, and striking it with the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Leshem Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Dan, according to their villages, these cities with their villages. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, timnath Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim, and he rebuilt the city and settled in it. These are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by Lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, so great was this inheritance that the tribes stood with joyful anticipation, waiting for their blessing to be revealed to them. And yet, we know that throughout history, and even actually in this text here, we find other reactions than joyful anticipation. We find compromise, we find weakness exposed. And so, Father, we wait with anticipation the voice of your Spirit speaking these words again to us, that we might see why for thousands of years these words have been preserved for the good of your people and the glory of the name of Jesus and the edification of the church. Speak to us afresh, we pray, and make us more like Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. So I want to talk to you today about a subject that I have spoken about in uh, various contexts and will continue to speak about because it's quite relevant to us. I want to talk about the topic of church growth. I've observed before that we've been blessed here at All Saints in recent months and years with some wonderful growth. We don't even need to have half a Carbondale and two-thirds of Monroe, Louisiana joining us for the church to be full. Many weeks it is with people who live in Fort Worth, which is wonderful. And much of the growth, though not all of it, 
Much of it falls into two categories. First, there are Christians moving to the area. Welcome. It's wonderful to have you with us. And second, there are some Christians who, for various reasons, uh, have a change in theological conviction such that they feel happier at a church that, you know, tries to do things the way that we try to do things. And so, again, we want to handle that with sensitivity because we recognize that, in many cases, they're leaving behind faithful Bible-believing churches that just see things a little differently from us. So Pastor Neil and I always take the opportunity to reach out to leaders in churches like that, just to uh, pray for them and to thank them for their ministry and just to take the opportunity to build relationships rather than seeing them torn down. And so, but it's still in that case, it's wonderful. And many of you here are in that category. You've joined us recently, either moved to the area or moved from another church, and it is wonderful to see. But there are other possibilities. There are other sources of growth which I suspect, if uh, uh, the, my taste of the culture in which we're living is anything to go by, may become even more significant in the future. And I think we should be praying for these, to understand them, to appreciate where these sources of growth may come from as we seek to grow. You know, we're praying for a provision of a larger building that we'll be able to meet in. We have in mind in the future church plants in the surrounding area. As we're praying about that, I want you to have in mind some features of our culture. We do not live really anymore in a Christian culture. We kind of do, but we kind of don't. Uh, Certainly, it's not the case anymore that the institutions and the leaders in the civil sphere and even all churches are profoundly shaped by the gospel. That's been the case in the past. It's not the case anymore. Many Christian uh, institutions have abandoned their convictions. And so when we're trying to understand the culture around us, it's not good enough to say, well, we live in a Christian culture. It's not really anymore. We can't really take for granted those convictions. But it's not really exactly an unbelieving culture either, is it? I mean, evangelizing and church planting in Fort Worth and the surrounding area is not like church planting in China or Pakistan. Communist, Muslim cultures... Rather, we live in what I think is best understood as a formerly Christian culture, Uh, uh, a world in which the gospel has shaped institutions in the past, but which uh, that history is increasingly becoming history. The technical term is an apostate culture. It's part of the title of uh, today's sermon, church growth in an apostate culture. The Christian faith has still left its mark on our society but it's really the fading marks of a formerly professing, faithful Christian world. And the question is, what should we expect in an apostate culture? How do churches grow in a culture like that? I want to alert you to two categories of people, because I want us to be ready for them when they arrive. At least two categories of people, it seems to me, are likely to come in through that door on Sunday mornings given the culture that we're in. The first I want to call wounded souls. Wounded souls. People who've had some kind of previous church experience, but they've been let down by it. They used to go to church, they don't anymore, and they're cynical, and they're understandably cynical because, like, you know, the church really kind of wasn't there for them. And then what often happens, of course, if people drift away from even that kind of Christian community, they sometimes get themselves into trouble. So think of... um, I don't know, the, the, young, the young woman in her 20s whose grandma took her to Sunday school, but she kind of didn't find it very relevant because it wasn't very relevant because, remember, post-Christian 
culture, even in the churches. And so she sort of left that behind and left her grandmother's influence behind, which would have been good if she stuck with it, but you know, and now she got pregnant and the husband, she's pretty sure which one it is, but not 100%, and, but she's got the child and now, so she doesn't know what to do. And when she thinks of church, what she thinks of is, yeah, they were the first bunch of people who let me down. They were the first bunch of people who kind of never really seemed relevant, and I, I, yeah, but I'm not sure they'd be there for me if I went back, wounded souls. Second bunch of people I think we might expect to see, tragically walking in, victims of wolves. Victims of wolves. These are people who've not been at churches that are just different. This is not, they've been at the, the faithful, uh, biblically conservative Baptist church down the road that just does things a little differently from us. These are people who've been at churches that are actually destructive, mainline Protestant liberal churches that have long since lost the gospel compromised former evangelical churches that have gone woke or gone progressive or gone somewhere. Vast, vast numbers of what, I love this expression, Pastor Wilson up in Moscow, Idaho, calls evangelifish churches. You know, that's what I mean. It's like, oh, please, will you stop making the Christian faith a branch of the entertainment industry? Where just so, you know what I mean? It's just so pathetic. Desperately trying to cling to people. It's like, look, the entertainment industry does entertainment so much better than the church ever could. Why would people stay there? And they won't. They won't. Eventually, people will leave Joel Osteen's church. And where are they going to go? Well, I pray that some of them might show up somewhere that they're trying to teach them the scriptures. I don't, I've got to be honest about this. Like, I really don't want to encourage sheep stealing. You know the expression? It's a church planting thing, you know, just shuffling cards around from one faithful church to another faithful church and celebrating because you started off small, everyone moved around randomly and because of mean reversion you ended up slightly bigger. Like that's not church. But I absolutely do want to encourage saving people from the wolves that Jesus warned about. The false shepherds of Ezekiel 34. The false prophets who don't care for the sheep, they're hired hands, they'll do anything to keep people in. I would love every single church like that to empty today and all to show up on our doorstep. Then we'd have a church growth problem, I promise you. But because that would actually be great to rescue people from that kind of chaos. Victims of wolves. In an apostate culture, we're likely to find those two kinds of people. Wounded souls. People have been hurt and let down. And people have been taught just bad things. Error. Destructive heresies. And I hope we see more of them. Right, now... Why do I think that? Well, partly it's just a demographic observation, but it's not just a demographic observation. I think Scripture teaches that in a culture like ours, we can expect to see this. And one of the places it teaches this is in uh, Joshua chapter 19. Recall the situation. Chapter 18, big moment. Joshua has gathered all the people, uh, the tent of meeting, to discover the inheritances that they've been given by the Lord. Uh, Of course, they've not all bothered to go out and mark them out and figure out what they are, so he has a bit of a uh, a rebuke and sends three people from each of the seven remaining tribes out and they go out and they come back and everyone's waiting to hear um, what they're going to receive and then Joshua has his exhortation go and take it take the inheritance for which you're redeemed and so the people go out and the question is well how are the tribes going to respond and last week we had Benjamin remember who had this tiny little sliver of inheritance I'm going to refer to this map in your orders of worship you might want to grab this the tiny little sliver of Benjamin and there wasn't the the peep of a complaint from them, which is amazing given that Manasseh had sort of 20 times their area and they spent half the previous chapter complaining about it. 
The Benjaminites show gratitude and contentment with what the Lord has given them. Well, how are the rest of the tribes going to respond? What's going to happen? And in the rest of this narrative, there's a couple of things go on. You, you probably noticed that um, if you counted all the cities that I read out, you know, I'm like, what? Is Pastor Jeffrey really going to count all those cities? Yes, obviously. Where, and how many of you were counting them as I was reading them? And how many of you noticed that the number of cities didn't add up to the number that it said in the text? Ooh. And you look at the borders, and you try and figure out where the borders would run. Actually, it's quite difficult. The borders are not really well-defined, like with Benjamin and Judah. It's like the borders are really sketchy. Some of the tribes don't even have a description of their border. It's as though what the Lord is saying is, in contrast with Benjamin, where it's described in rich and wonderful detail, these tribes, it's like, yeah, we couldn't really be bothered to, you know, to sketch it out. Yeah, it's like, hmm. There's a kind of tension and fragmentation even within the narrative that suggests that that's what's going on within the faith of Israel herself. But there are two tribes that really stand out, and they're the first and the last on that list. That's where I want to spend most of our time today, with Simeon, the first on the list, and with Dan, the last on the list. And we see in these two tribes, well, we see with Dan, victims of wolves. We'll come to that in a couple of minutes. But with Simeon first, wounded sheep. I want to tell you the really wonderful story of the tribe of Simeon. Uh, I, was, I thought about switching them around because I'm going to leave you so depressed finishing with Dan because Dan is just like so miserable and frustrating. But I thought, no, no, that's too bad. That's what the Word of God has done. We're going to suck it up. The Word of God comes to us in this form. So we'll start with Simeon. The Simeonites basically are a tribe of wounded people. They are scarred by the sin of their forefathers. They couldn't conquer their inheritance and so they basically had to be rescued by Judah. And this narrative draws together a bunch of threads from elsewhere in Scripture that I'm going to show you. Just look with me first. Um, verse 19. Sorry, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. The second lot came out for Simeon, the tribe of the people of Judah, and according, according to their clans. And where's their inheritance? Their inheritance is in the midst of the inheritance of the people of Judah. And again, at the end, in verse 9, it says the same thing. And if you look at your map, you've got your map here. Somebody made the excellent suggestion that I should do maps for sermons that involve geography. So here we are. And see Simeon right down at the bottom? And it's like an enclave in technical terms, like the Sutu in South Africa. And there are, um, there are even um, part cities in the DFW area that are techni technically enclaves of Fort Worth and so on. So that's what Simeon is, which is very weird. I know there's um, an explanation in verse 9 the inheritance of the people of Simeon formed part of the territory of the people of Judah because the portion of the people of Judah was too large for them. It's like, well, yes, but actually, that's only a part of the story. Do you want to know the full story of the back, the back story of the people of Simeon? It is one of the coolest and most Christ-glorifying mini-narratives that I've ever come across in the whole of the Bible. Let me, let me tell you what happens. Basically, the story begins in the previous generation, in the book of Numbers. We ended up in Numbers last week, remember? Well, I'm going to go back in Numbers again. Get your Bibles out, loosen up the fingers. Go back to Numbers chapter 1. Uh, the book of Numbers tells a story of the 39 years of wandering in the desert after the giving of the law on the way from Egypt to Israel. So first year, they get to Sinai, they've got all the stuff, built the tabernacle, yada, 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 end of Exodus. Then you've got Leviticus, bunch of instructions, sacrifices and stuff. Then Numbers, 39 years of wandering to go on a two-week journey. We'll have to think about that at some point. But anyway, that's what the book of Numbers is about. And at the beginning of that generation, they took a census of all the different people. They numbered all the men who could go to war. And the, the tribes are numbered individually. Numbers chapter 1, 
And just look at verse uh, 22. The people of Simeon, by their generations, yada, yada, their clans, their fathers' houses. End of verse 23. Those listed of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. Now, that's the first census in the book of Numbers. 39 years later, Moses takes a second census, which you find in Numbers 26. Turn on to the book of Num- to Numbers 26. Who wants a, a sermon series in the book of Numbers, by the way? Yeah, okay, I do. I like the book of Numbers. There's so much stuff in it that nobody knows because nobody reads it, and it's kind of interesting and exciting. So you basically got all the tribes listed again 40, or 39 years later. Now, what's happened to the numbers of most of the tribes? They've gone up by like 3, 5, 6, 7%. What's happened to the tribe of Judah, for example? No, sorry, the tribe of Simeon. The tribe of Judah is even bigger. It's 76,500. It was 74,000 previous generations. It's gone up a bit. Well, the tribe of Simeon, uh, Numbers 26, verse 12, the sons, the, cli- ugh, the, tri- the sons of Simeon, according to their clans, all these different people. Verse 14, these are the clans of the Simeonites. How many? 22,000. Like, what? All these other tribes have started quite big, 50 or 60,000, and gone up a bit. Simeon started at 59,000, and have gone down to 22,000. What has happened to the Simeonites? The answer is found in the previous chapter, Numbers 25. Turn to Numbers 25, verse 1. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore, sorry for the language except not sorry because it's in the Bible, with the daughters of Moab. They invited the the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This is one of the most terrible terrible moments in the whole of the Bible up to this point. The people of God are on their way to abandoning the Lord and worshipping another God. First commandment violation. It's like they're not even got to the promised land yet and they're already abandoning the Torah, the law of God. And in response to this, uh, the Lord um, acts in judgment in the form of a plague. People are dying all around the camp of Israel in their thousands. And then verse 4 and 5 The Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people, that is all the chiefs of the people who are responsible, and and hang them before the Lord. That Moses is trying, in other words, to um, find those responsible. And then in verse 6, they're all kind of gathered around the the tent of meeting for kind of like big prayer meeting to pray that the Lord would turn away his wrath from them because of this plague. And as they're praying, okay, they're, they're like hundreds of thousands of people all gathered. As they're praying, verse 6, behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance to the tent of meeting. It's like, you, like we're all praying that the Lord would turn his wrath away from us for this idolatry and adultery, and you're bringing your Baal-worshipping girlfriend into your tent, and everyone can like see and hear what's happening. Now, Phineas then is like, okay, I'm done with this. Where's that long pointy stick? And he, I won't read that. The, ch- the children whose parents read Judges 19 to them yesterday, thinking that Joshua 19, I've already had some biblical blood and guts this weekend. I don't want to be even too traumatized. But anyway, Phineas deals with them, which is why actually in, um, there's, there's, there's a, a portion where, earlier in Scripture where you've got what purports to be the, um, the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. It's called that in the ESV heading. It is not the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. It is the genealogy of Phineas, the righteous man who stuck a spear through the idolaters. Anyway, 
So that deals with that. And then the plague stops. And everyone's sort of, my goodness, what's happening? Now, here's the question. Who was the guy? Who was the man? Presumably one of the ringleaders who brought his Moabite girlfriend, Baal worshipper lady, into the people of Israel during the prayer meeting when the people are trying to call the Lord to be merciful to them to stop the plague. Verse 14, Numbers 25. Look what he says. The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was, drum roll please, Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to which tribe? The Simeonites. So, here's a question. Those uh, 24,000 people who died in the plague, which tribe do you reckon they came from? Which tribe was it that led this compromise, this idolatry? The Simeonites. So now, you're about to conquer the promised land, or rather, all the other tribes are about to conquer the promised land, because all their fighting men are still alive. But what about yours? Just imagine the effects of that on the tribe of Simeon. They've lost 20-something thousand men. Devastated families, children who've lost dad, wife who's lost the husband. The the tribe has lost, basically, its army has been eviscerated. And you're about to enter Canaan to conquer your inheritance. How on earth are you going to conquer your inheritance with no army? The answer is found, and this is partly why I got tangled up with Joshua and Judges on Thursday when I was sending our wonderful administrators the, um, the passage that I was supposed to send them, Joshua 19. The answer is found, actually, in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 1. Flick forward a few pages. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, seventh book of the Bible. And basically what you've got in Judges chapter 1 is a kind of retrospective and summary of what the whole of the book of Joshua is about, and then also the next generation. And it tells you some details of the conquest. So there they are. The Simeonites have come into the land, kind of sans army. Like, who's going to conquer our land for us? We just received our inheritance. Who's going to do it? And Judges chapter 1, verse 3, well, I'll start in verse 2. Um, the people inquire, they, they say, okay, who should go up first to fight? And um, the Lord says in verse 2, Judah shall go up, I've given the land into his hand. And what does Judah say? Judah looks around at his brother, big brother actually, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, first four tribes, big brother. Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Twice in that chapter, Simeon is called Simeon his brother, the brother of Judah. Judah looked at his weak, broken, shattered Simeonite friends and realized like, look, your, your life is such a train wreck. You are still scarred by the sins of former generations. You're never going to be able to enjoy your inheritance unless somebody goes in and fights for you. Simeon is the wounded soul of Israel. And Judah looks out and is like, guys, we, we, can't, leave, <laughs> we can't leave them. Hey, <laughs> come with us and fight with us because that will help. And, and then we'll go and fight with you. And we'll make sure that you get your inheritance as well. Now, here's a question for you. 
If you knew nothing else about the history of the Old Testament, you'd never read anything else in the Bible, and then somebody says, okay, which tribe do you think the Messiah came from? Revelation 5.5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. So that little cameo tucked away in, what, Numbers, Joshua, and Judges, what, the three most neglected books in the Old Testament, is this glorious picture of Jesus, Jesus, the Judahite king, looking around, thinking, right, who are the weakest people here? Who are the people who are never going to be able to conquer their inheritance without somebody else to sacrifice, somebody else to lay down their lives? Oh, that'll be them. And so he opens wide his arms for the very weakest among the people. In fact, if you look at the map, that's exactly why Simeon is that enclave. If you look at maps of um, the inheritances of the individual tribes that date from later periods in Israel's history, Simeon isn't even included. Because basically what happened is that Simeon got kind of swallowed up into Judah. The, the, it's, it's as though Judah was saying, like, anybody who wants to get at Simeon, you're going to have to get past me first. And then second, you know what, now you're here. Why, why don't you just stay? Why don't you just join with us? Why don't you just be a part of this community? Isn't that just what Jesus says? So the first strand of church growth strategy, according to Joshua 19, is exactly this, isn't it? It's find the wounded souls. Who are the ones who... They, they kind of would love to receive their inheritance, but know they can't do it for themselves and, and almost don't dare to ask... And in order to receive it, they're going to need, let's just call it extraordinary help. They're going to need somebody to lay down their lives for them. That young single mum. Now, it's really interesting, isn't it, how, how sin has effects in the long term. Have you noticed that? And how the effects are, dif- are distributed differently in different people. Like, there are two people involved in that fornication, One guy doesn't seem to be much affected by it, but she's got the child, she loves the child, and she's probably thinking, I can't go back to church because, like, I mean, they didn't really welcome me last time, and now I've got a child out of wedlock, who's going to want to, who's going to even want to talk to me? She, she's, I don't know, maybe she believes in Jesus, but she's never going to receive her inheritance, is she, without some Judahite to die for her? Or better still, a church full of Judahites to die for her, to sacrifice for her. And it's extremely costly. Costly to help a young, vulnerable person who's been scarred by sin in that way or any one of a thousand other ways. We get calls here every week. Interesting. We get calls. um, Mrs. Loki in the church office fields calls every week from people asking for money. And I've given her a little script to say, which is basically, there's a bunch of stuff we say. Well, one of the things I say is we have a policy where we, we don't just give money to people who call us. We, um, we know that people have many needs. That's part of the problem. If we emptied all our bank accounts into a big fund and then distributed it to all the people who can't pay their rent, we'd probably fix a problem for about three days. We can't, we can't do that. But then what I say is, look, I, d- I don't know what your um, religious beliefs are, but let's be honest, right? If... If you've got yourself into this mess where you can't make next month's rent payment, 
you, just giving you next month's rent payment isn't really going to solve the problem, is it? Because then you've got the month after that. You, you're going to need some help to kind of get things straightened out here. Um, I can't force you to come to church. I'm not really wanting to force you to come to church. But if you, if you were to come and get to know us, I promise we would try to help you. That's what I say. I promise we would try to help you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm making a promise on your behalf. Can I make that promise? Can I? Can I? Because that's the Judahites. Like, oh, a whole, we've got to fight for our own inheritance. Yeah, I know, I know. But, but they're your brothers, and they want your help. What are you going to do? Wounded souls. Expect Texas to be flooded with them, and I pray that the Lord sends some of them here. All right, so that's the Simeonites. What about the Danites? I promise you. Okay, sorry, this is, this is more depressing. Um, but in, in a sense, I, I don't know whether it's depressing. May, may, I, I find it a little bit depressing. I'll, I'll tell you what, what happens, and then you can tell me whether you agree. But we've got to hear it. The Danites, at least some of them, particularly their leaders, clearly compromised. They abandoned their inheritance. They didn't actually take the land that was allotted to them. Instead, they headed off somewhere else to find somewhere easier to conquer. And so anybody who is faithful in the tribe of Dan is going to be a victim of a false shepherd, false leaders, victims of wolves. Let me explain what I mean. Their inheritance is summarized in verses 40 to 46, where you've got a list of cities. Um, and you've got, I won't read them all out again, Zorah, Esterol, and, Esterol and so on. You recognize some of these from the narrative of Samson, by the way, in the book of Judges, Judges 13 through 16, you recognize some of these cities. Anyway, um, and then verse 47 just says, like it's the most natural thing in the world, oh, and the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them. That The idiom means something like it slipped through their fingers. It uses the same verb that, um, that's used in the allocation of the tribes, the, the, the inheritance. It was like they received it, and then, sorry, so it went out to them, and then it went out from them. It's like, mm, sh- sh- slipped through my fingers. And what they actually did was they headed up, verse 47, to a city called Leshem, and they captured it and struck it with a sword and took possession of it, and they renamed it Dan. Now, where's Leshem? Just look at your map for a second. Can you find a city named Leshem? No, you can't. There's no city named Leshem on this. There's a city called Dan on your map. Can you see where it is? If you look at it, right at the top, go right up to the top, ignore the inheritance that Dan's supposed to have. Um, In the territory of Naphtali, just on the east side of the river is a little town called Dan. That's where they went. Now, why? What on earth is going on? Like, why, why, would you, why wouldn't you conquer the inheritance that God has given you? Why would you scurry off up there? Well, there's a backstory, and again, in Judges chapter 1, you've got this description of how they failed. They were driven back by the uh, Canaanites in the land. Those cities that were allocated to them uh, Ijalon and Shalbin and uh, one or two other cities, they were actually occupied by Canaanites. And then the end of Judges chapter 1, which is this summary of Israel inheriting their land, gives a description of the Canaanite borders. It's the, the Canaanites who were established in the land, at least in the territory of Dan. So it looks like, well, they're weak and faithless and cowardly or something. They didn't want to fight or they didn't think they could fight even by the Lord's strength and their inheritance. Actually, it's worse than that. If you go later in the book of Judges, and I'm not going to take you to the... It's in Judges 18. Um, Go and read it later. You've got this horrific account of what happens. Basically, they weren't interested in the inheritance that God had given them. They did their own little land survey. So they, they sent off spies to find somewhere else 
And they found this city called Laish, or it's called Laish in Judges 18, it's called Leshem here, same place. And they set off to conquer it. On the way, they bribed a priest. They found, found this guy who's got an idolatrous priest, and they offered to pay him more money, and then they threatened his um, kind of former master with violence if he tried to do anything about it. And so they take this priest with all his silver shrines and false gods and stuff, and they set up a shrine to these silver false gods up in Dan, and it stayed there for generations. And you're like, why would they do this? Well, where's Dan? Look, where is it? Which inheritance is it in? Naphtali, can you see? They stole a bit of Naphtali's inheritance. And those of you who were here last week will be able to remember why. Who remembers Naphtali's inheritance, the beautiful, rich, dark soil of the Hula Valley, the agricultural paradise, the beautiful... It's still used for grazing and for crops to this day. It was easier. That was the first reason. We want somewhere nice. Easier to live and nicer to live in. We don't want to live down in where Ekron and Gath and Ashdod are right on the borders. They're Philistines there. They're strong and frightening. We'd rather be somewhere peaceful, like up in the north. Um, and the other reason, of course, is, and you discover this in the book of Judges, because the uh, inhabitants of Leshem or Laish are described as unsuspecting, peace-loving. They don't seem to have an army themselves much to speak of. And so the Danites, basically, they're scouting around for something easier. The people of Israel have had their inheritance set before them, and each part of the inheritance comes with its own unique challenges. Maybe it's small and rocky. It's going to be hard to live on. Maybe it's big, and there are hostile tribes in it and around it. And the Danites are like, no thanks, but no thanks. Um, we, we want somewhere that's really, really easy to farm and somewhere that's really, really easy to conquer. We're going to send out our own spies and figure it out for ourselves. Thanks very much. Oh, we'll take our own gods with us while we're doing it. It's a counterfeit conquest. It's got all the trappings of conquest. We're going to go and conquer the city. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, conquering a bunch of teddy bears, really. And in Revelation chapter 7, where you get the list of... You ever wondered about that? You've got the list of all the 12 tribes of Israel that are going to be... Uh, that are numbered, all 12 of them, in uh, the new heavens and the new earth, the, the vision that John sees. You know which tribe is excluded? It's Dan. And now you know why. So... Okay, how does this speak to us particularly? I think there are a couple of ways. I th the first way, I think we've got to feel the challenge to ourselves. It is possible for anybody to counterfeit faithfulness. Not abandon faithfulness, but produce a cheap, easy, less costly alternative. I'll give you an example. Um, we, we have... I think, probably in our small corner of the church, been rediscovering the, the value of Christian masculinity, Christian manhood, fathers being fathers, husbands being husbands, men being men, in a culture which is quite a hostile to masculine distinctives. And so that's good. And, it's, and actually, it's wonderful to see some of the fellowship, isn't it? I mean, I know some of the... I went once recently, um, cigar night, sec, second Tuesday, first Tuesday, cigar night, wonderful. So you've got these guys who are singing psalms and have a drink, and if you like cigars to ruin the taste of the whiskey, you can have a cigar, whatever. Um, because it's, like, it's really encouraging to men trying to be godly Christian men. But let me tell you something. It's much easier just to take the cigars and the whiskey to counterfeit masculinity. 
Because any Muppet can sing a few psalms, grow a big beard, and I'm not against beard, right? And have a whiskey and smoke a cigar. It costs nothing. See, real manhood is about sacrifice, yeah? Real masculinity is about what you do when you get home for your wife and your children. Real masculinity is, you teenage lads, it's, it's how you're preparing at school to provide for your family in the future. It's not drinking whiskey at your age, okay? So it's easy to produce a fake version of the real thing. And I think there's another way it might hit us, like as and when we find an opportunity to plant a church, the temptation is for all of us going to be, okay, which is going to be nicer? Would I rather stay here? Would it be nicer for me to stay at All Saints or to go to the new place? So you go sniff it out for a couple of weeks and then try and sort of, hmm, which, which, is, which is nicer? It reminds me, back in England, when a general election used to be coming up, we would, um, uh, the BBC, or maybe it was the Telegraph, I forget which, produced a website which would basically tell you, if you input your income and the number of kids you've got and where you live and whether you own your property and so on and how much you earn, it will basically tell you which of the parties would give you more money if they got into power. It's like, what the heck way kind of to decide who to vote for? It's like, but, well, why do you think we keep getting socialists then? Because they give more people more money, duh. I mean, is that how we're going to decide whether you go with a church plant or not? Which is nicer. It's how the Danites decided where to conquer their inheritance. But there is another problem, and I don't want to... Uh, this isn't about beating us up. This is about honestly taking stock of the church situation in which we find ourselves. The rest of the church, the church at large, in other words, in, the, in our nation, is tragically Danite. This is not just my opinion. This is actual data. Somebody was kind enough to send me some data a few days ago. Um, uh, I've been, I, I was looking at the Pew Research Forum. Apparently, 78% of people in Dallas-Fort Worth area go, uh, call themselves Christians. 78%. You might think, well, job's done here then. It's like, well, no. Dig a bit deeper. You find about half of them go to church, which is not a great start. And then you consider what the churches are like. So um, I think it might have been Jack sent to all the guys on the men's group chat this survey, the state of theology. Did anybody look at that survey? This is the state of theology in the churches. So I did some research. I was like, this is interesting. I like kind of data. Former scientist, you know. Old habits die hard. So I was, I was doing some research. I started with the, the mainline Protestant liberal churches. I couldn't bear it, so I just stopped. I thought, churches are hard to believe anything at all. So then I thought, okay, let's be really selective. I'm going to narrow down to, to Christians who define themselves by their commitment to the Bible. So I looked only at the Christians who affirmed, quote, the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Do you want to hear what, they, what the survey results were for that, that group of Christians, according to this survey? A quarter believe that the Holy Spirit can tell me to do something that's forbidden in the Bible, that modern science disproves the Bible, that church attendance is unnecessary, that the Bible's condemnation of homosexual activity doesn't apply today, and that religious belief is not about objective truth. A third deny the biblical doctrine of election. Two-thirds deny the biblical doctrine of original sin. And around half deny the personality of the Holy Spirit, believe that God accepts the worship of Muslims and that Jesus is not truly God. Great churches to be going to. But it gets worse. <laughs> like, it gets worse than that. Yes, it does. Because there are mistakes in the survey. The survey was constructed by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research, which have done great work in the past. Really, really great work. But 
they need to do better than this. Um, there are at least three questions which are just confused or misleading or plain wrong. So, for example, they say, question six, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Do you believe that's true or false? This is supposed to be a test of your orthodoxy. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, the question is confused. They're trying to test for Arianism, which is the view that there was a time when God the Son was not. But the way you test for Arianism is by asking questions about God the Son and his eternal relationship with the Father. You do not test for Arianism by confusing the issue, talking about Jesus, who is both man and God. So if you read the word first to mean preeminent, then yes, Jesus is certainly the greatest being created by God. But they interpret that as Arian. They've confused a denial of docetism with a denial of Arianism. With, sorry, an affirmation of Arianism. Now, I'm like, I was looking at this question thinking, it's like those exam questions you get. You know, when, when, when the question is confused and you're trying to work out, like, what does the questioner want me to think the question is about? And then you try and answer that question, you know? There are a couple of others. Um, the worst, I thought, I won't read all three. The worst one was the, quote, do you believe the Holy Spirit gives spiritual new birth or new life before a person has faith in Jesus? They regard that as, you've got to say yes to that. The Spirit gives new birth before a person has faith in Jesus. I'm like, that's very odd. In introducing that kind of chronological step. I looked at the explanation of the question. They quote John 3, and they say, and I quote, Jesus told Nicodemus that a person must be born again before he can see or enter the kingdom of God, John 3. I'm sorry, John 3 doesn't contain the word before. It says, unless. And really what they're doing is they've, They've got quite a narrow subversion of Reformed theology which wants to put a kind of very strict ordo salutis in place. This, then this, then this, then this, then this, which has been criticised a lot in the last few decades, but they're making it a test of orthodoxy. So guys, what are you supposed to do when even the good shepherds, Ligonier Ministries is good, are making mistakes like this? What you need to do is to be ready to pick up the casualties. That's actually what you need to do. Now, I don't think Ligonier Ministries is in the same category as I mentioned Joel Osteen earlier, just for the sake of clarity. Like, Ligonier Ministries is not in that category. But it isn't that encouraging, is it? No wonder, no wonder we can expect to find people scarred by messed up theology, by leaders who don't know what they're doing. And any Danites who wanted to receive the inheritance that God had for them and to worship him would have to leave Dan and find themselves another tribe, wouldn't they? So what are we going to do when people want to leave churches where they've been messed up by teachers who don't know what they're talking about? I don't want to be sheep-stealing, genuinely. I just want to rescue people from wolves. That's all. And it strikes me that along with wounded souls, we may find in an era where compromise in churches, plural, is growing, that we have more victims of wolves as well. And my challenge is to you is, to be ready to receive them, because that may be how our church grows. Should we pray? Merciful Father, preserve us, we pray, from foolishness, from error, above all, from sinful disregard of the blessings of the inheritance that you've granted to us. Teach us faithfulness in it. May we be like Judah, 
seeking out those who have been wounded, ready to welcome those who are just confused, and seeking in all things to serve with integrity and faithfulness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.